Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. Hey everyone, I'm Megan, the Family Finance Mom, and welcome to this week's episode of Finance Explained. This week, I've got three major financial headlines for you. The market was a bit of a mixed bag last week, hitting new highs before ending the week down, driven by three big financial and economic data releases. First, Tuesday's release of advanced retail sales for February, down far more than economists predicted. Two, Wednesday's FOMC statement and follow-up Fed press conference, where they announced no change to monetary policy, despite far stronger economic projections and continued inflation concerns. And three, Thursday's worse-than-expected weekly jobless claims report. A year since the pandemic lockdowns began, and we are still seeing new claims higher than ever previously reported in any recession every single week. After that, we will take a deep dive into what's next on the Biden administration's agenda, infrastructure spending and how they plan to pay for it, higher taxes. What are they planning and how is it likely to impact you? Now let's talk about the three biggest financial headlines of the week. Up first, on Tuesday, the U.S. Census Bureau released an estimate of U.S. retail and food services sales for February. Why do these matter? They give us the first indication each month of how consumer spending is doing. And recall, consumer spending represents 70% of our overall economy. Economists predicted retail sales to be down slightly for the month given the bad winter storm that shut down states like Texas for nearly a week, as well as the difficult comparison to January, which had the benefit of stimulus check-fueled spending. But they were worse than most predicted, down 3% versus January. If you zoom in and look more closely at the most recent data, you can see how stimulus checks boosted January spending above the long-term trend line, and February was really just coming back towards reality. Sales were flat to down in all major categories versus January. Overall, on a year-over-year comparison, all major categories have seen solid growth, except for restaurants, which definitely are among the sector's hardest hit by the quarantine restrictions and have seen sales down 17% year-over-year. It will be extremely interesting to track retail sales over the coming months, given the largest round of stimulus to date has now been sent. The U.S. issued more than 90 million checks worth a total of $242 billion over the last week. That, in combination with accelerating vaccination rates and many states easing back on health restrictions, should lead to a healthy recovery in retail spending as we move forward into 2021. Only time will tell if that plays out as expected. Are you planning on saving, paying down debt, or spending your stimulus check? Next, Wednesday, the Fed held a press conference following one of its eight regularly scheduled FOMC meetings. So who is the FOMC and what do they meet about? The Federal Open Market Committee, aka FOMC, meets eight times a year to determine the open market operations of the Federal Reserve. The FOMC consists of 12 members, seven members of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, 
the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and four of the remaining 11 Reserve Bank presidents who rotate terms annually. There are 12 Federal Reserve Banks, one in each of New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Richmond, Cleveland, Chicago, Atlanta, St. Louis, Dallas, Minneapolis, Kansas City, and San Francisco. They meet to review current economic and financial conditions across the regions of the nation and determine what is appropriate monetary policy given those conditions. Following each meeting, the Fed releases a formal statement and the Fed chairman holds a press conference. The markets follow the formal statement extremely closely, not only for any change in the exact Fed funds target rate, which guides short-term interest rates, and open market purchase activity, which manipulates longer-term rates, but also for any minor changes in wording that could indicate future actions. There was no change to monetary policy out of this meeting. They continue to hold the Fed funds target rate to 0.25%, essentially at zero, and purchase $80 billion in U.S. Treasuries and $40 billion in mortgage-backed securities monthly through open market operations. So what exactly are open market operations? It means the Federal Reserve buying or selling primarily U.S. Treasury securities on the open market just like any other investor. But they do it in order to regulate the money supply and manipulate interest rates. The Fed buys treasuries, and currently mortgage-backed securities too, to increase the supply of money, and they can also sell them in the future to reduce the supply of money. The overall objective is to manipulate short-term interest rates consistent with monetary policy and increase or decrease the money supply to keep markets and prices stable. The Fed is currently buying $120 billion worth of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities monthly, expanding its balance sheet and the money supply, which has grown more in the last year than ever before. With these open market activities, the money supply increased by 70% in 2020, with $2.8 trillion added to circulation. To give you some perspective, that's more than what the entire U.S. money supply was as recently as 2014 and almost as much was added from 2008 through the end of 2019 combined, over a decade. It's why people are so worried about inflation. During this press conference, we also got updated economic projections from the Fed. These only come with every other FOMC meeting, the ones in March, June, September, and December. Each FOMC member makes predictions on their outlook for the U.S. economy. Specifically, they make predictions for GDP growth, the unemployment rate, PCE growth, which is the Fed's measure for inflation, as well as what they believe future federal funds rate targets will need to be given their projections. The Fed publishes these predictions as a summary, but also as individual dots, so you can see exactly where every prediction by each member fell. And while there was no change to monetary policy out of this meeting, The members' March 2021 projections show far stronger growth expectations for 2021, with predictions for 2021 GDP to now be up 6.5% versus their predictions at the end of 2020 of just 4.2% growth. They also expect more recovery in the labor market, with expectations of the unemployment rate to be down to 4.5% by the end of the year, near normal employment levels, 
versus their predictions of 5 to 5.5% at the end of last year. And they expect inflation now too, and at levels much higher than before. They predict 2021 PCE inflation to be 2.4% versus predictions of 1.8% for the year just three months ago. Given these improving expectations, their predictions for when to begin raising interest rates changed as well. Three more members, now up to four votes, expect rates to rise next year in 2022. And seven members, up two votes from December, expect to see higher rates by 2023. So if they predict things to be getting better far sooner than before, why aren't they changing monetary policy? The Fed is holding tightly to its position of accommodative monetary policy given the current weakness in the labor market. They also believe inflation expectations to be transitory, temporary, or for just a brief period of time, and not persistent. So what are investors worried about here? Investors worry that with short-term rates continuing to remain at essentially zero for years going forward, should the economic recovery falter at all in the coming few years, especially if inflation ends up being more than just transitory, the Fed will have very limited tools at their disposal to effectively stimulate the economy. Lowering rates below zero, as has been done in the Eurozone, literally means you would get charged for keeping money in your savings account. It is not popular policy. And adding to the money money supply for even more open market purchases would further fuel inflation, creating a painful stagflationary environment like the U.S. experienced in the 1970s. That brings me to the weekly jobless claims report. Since the Fed is still worried about the labor market, what does the labor market look like? The labor market has definitely experienced the most negative impact in this recession, and its recovery is most critical to a full economic recovery for everyone. On Thursday, weekly jobless claims for the week ending March 13th increased to 770,000 new claims, a 6% increase from the previous week's revised level of 725,000 claims. Economists had expected them to improve, so this was disappointing. New weekly claims remain extremely elevated relative to pre-pandemic levels and even past recession highs. From 2015 to 2019, in a more normal labor market, weekly jobless claims averaged approximately 235,000 claims a week. The highest level of weekly jobless claims ever reported pre-2020, 695,000 back in the 1980s, and it was only at those levels for a week. We have now had an entire year of weekly claims higher than the highest weekly claims in any prior recession, and current weekly claims continue to run more than three times what is normal. It's also important to note that the headline numbers for total insured unemployment dramatically understate the level of actual unemployment. It only counts continued claims, those being paid unemployment under regular state programs. That's down to 4.1 million people, with an insured unemployment rate of just 3%. But as those weeks of eligibility run out, people qualify for extended and expanded federal programs. So this remains only a fraction of those covered under the expanded pandemic and emergency programs at both the state and federal level. 
total insured unemployment under these programs for the week ending 227 at the end of February is far greater, 18.2 million people. This week, it's down by nearly 2 million claims versus the week prior, which was up more than 2 million claims from the week before that. This total has bounced around a lot in recent weeks, and to be honest, I'm not entirely sure why. If it's due to the timing of benefits expiring before being extended or something else. The PEUC, or Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Claims, is where we see the biggest decline in continued claims. It's an extension of unemployment benefits for up to 24 weeks after someone has exhausted their state benefits. These were previously slated to expire last week, but under the American Rescue Plan Act officially passed into law two weeks ago, the expanded federal benefits programs are now extended to the end of August, and the weeks you can qualify for were doubled. So we will see if that ends some of the volatility around these as we move forward. But big picture, given new weekly claims and continued claims, the labor market recovery has really stalled since about November, and unemployment remains elevated. As vaccinations increase and health restrictions subside, we will have to watch this weekly data series for early signs of a return to recovery in the labor market. This week's podcast is also brought to you by the Family Finance Moms Book Club. If you want to increase your financial literacy even more, come read with us. It's super simple to join in. Every quarter, we read a book. To participate, all you have to do is read with us and join in the conversation by following me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom. Follow the hashtag FFM Book Club to catch all the related book club posts and join in the discussion in the comments. For Q2, we are actually reading a pair of contrasting books on economic theory. Big Debt Crises by Ray Dalio, which studies economic cycles of the last 1,500 years, and The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton, which poses a new economic theory, modern monetary theory, which says that deficit and the national debt may not really matter anymore. We'll compare and contrast them as when we discuss them in June. Now for this week's deep dive. With the stimulus bill now passed and checks going out, the Biden administration has turned its attention to its next major priority and campaign promise, infrastructure spending and how they plan to pay for it by raising taxes. So this week's deep dive is all about higher taxes and what it might mean for the economy and your family. The two major headline components of Biden's higher tax plan are raising income taxes on households earning more than $400,000 a year and increasing the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. There is no official bill for this in Congress yet, and pulling off the largest tax increase in decades in the midst of an early economic recovery will not be an easy feat. But here's a brief overview of what he's proposed, as well as the projected economic impact from two different tax think tanks, one progressive and one conservative. First, let's talk corporate taxes. The increase in the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28% is projected to drive one of the largest increases in federal tax revenues of all the changes proposed. Varying estimates predict it would raise from $750 billion to over a trillion in the next 10 years. 
Pre-2018, the U.S. had the highest corporate tax rate in the developed world. If domestically corporate taxes are higher than in other countries, it creates an incentive for corporations to locate their businesses and thus their jobs elsewhere. President Biden campaigned on and has reiterated his commitment to increasing the corporate tax rate. And while he doesn't plan on returning it to 35% like it was before 2018, he wants to increase it to 28%, returning us to, while no longer the top, among the highest corporate rates in the developed world. That's on the business side of the equation. There are also plans to close corporate tax loopholes by enacting a 15% minimum tax on book income, so you don't end up with companies like Amazon reporting millions in earnings to shareholders but paying zero in federal taxes. He also has a plan to double the tax rate on income earned abroad based on patents, trademarks, and copyrights developed here, known as guilty or global intangible low-taxed income. Now, what about personal income taxes? The Biden administration this week had to address the fact that his campaign promised to only raise taxes on those making over $400,000 applies to households and not just individuals. That means if you or your spouse makes $350,000 a year and the other makes just $60,000, it would still hit you because your household makes over $400,000. He proposes rolling back the Trump tax cuts for just the top tax bracket, increasing tax rates to 39.6%, from 35 or 37%, depending on your household income level. He also has proposed increasing the long-term capital gains rate for taxes paid on investment gains from investments held more than a year to normal income tax rates for those with income over a million dollars. This would nearly double it from 20% to 39.6%. But the biggest federal tax revenue raiser is a payroll tax hike for those making more than $400,000. Currently, the payroll tax rate for Social Security is 12.4%, with half paid by you as an employee and half paid by your employer. It also has a wage-based limit. For 2020, you only paid in on the first $137,000 of income. The base for 2021, $142,800. President Biden's proposal would reinstate it on earnings over $400,000. There are also plans to cap the effective tax rate of itemized deductions at 28% for those earning over $400,000. This means things like those 401k contributions that previously would reduce your tax burden at your marginal tax rate, proposed to now be 39.6% for those in the highest bracket, would now only get a 28% tax benefit. He also wants to phase out business income deductions for those making more than $400,000, something that significantly impacts small businesses who consolidate reporting on their personal income taxes. Based on household income data, these personal income tax increases essentially apply to the top 1% of households, or approximately 1.2 million households. His proposal also includes additional tax hikes for estate taxes, limits on both business and personal income tax deductions, as well as credits for lower-income households that offset some of these increases. It should be noted that no overall program has officially been unveiled, and so far, this is all just based on what he campaigned on and what his team has affirmed post-election. But most analysts estimate an increase in federal tax revenues 
of $2 to $4 trillion over the next 10 years based on these plans. Now, you may hear all this and say, well, that only applies to businesses and the rich. It won't impact me. However, it's important to realize that when you tax something, it creates changes in behavior that have ripple effects through the economy. Raising taxes on investment is likely to reduce investment, which reduces future growth. And raising taxes on businesses is likely to reduce jobs, creating unemployment at the very time when we're trying to improve the labor market. And both of the projections, one from the conservative-leaning tax foundation and the other from the progressive-leaning tax policy center, they both predict a reduction in GDP resulting from the plan over the next decade. The Tax Policy Center talks to reduce labor supply but doesn't quantify it, while the Tax Foundation estimates it would produce 5.5 million fewer jobs. Now, let's frame all of this with a little history on taxes in America. The tax code has evolved significantly over our country's history. When our country first began, there was no personal income tax or even a constitutional right of the government to collect them. The government made most of its revenue through tariffs on trade. The financial burdens of the Civil War prompted the first income taxes in the 1860s. Then, in the early 1900s, post-World War I, when Europe was an economic shambles, trade faltered and again the government turned to income taxes to raise revenue. The 16th Amendment passed in 1909 and signed into law in 1913 gave Congress the constitutional right to assess a federal income tax. And in the early years, income taxes were minimal, just 1% to 2% and only impacting the top 1% of wage earners. Over the years, the tax code got more complicated. In the 1930s and 40s, there were as many as 30 different tax brackets, with maximum marginal rates as high as 94% on those earning over $200,000. In the early 1990s, under President Clinton, the tax bracket was simplified to just two brackets, but has since expanded again to five, with the top marginal rate varying between 35 and 40 percent over the last few years. In 2017, President Trump overhauled the tax code with the biggest change in 30 years, making cuts to both personal income taxes as well as corporate taxes. These changes were passed by Congress and signed into law in December of 2017 and first impacted 2018 taxes. He increased the standard deduction for everyone to try and simplify tax returns and eliminate itemized deductions. Marginal rates improved across the board for all taxpayers. It also repealed the individual insurance mandate and the 2.5% of income penalty that was set to begin in 2019 and would have increased taxes for many, especially lower-income families. Corporate tax rates have varied over time, too. Corporate taxes are more volatile than income taxes, as corporate profits vary more dramatically with the economic environment than do incomes. You'll see the spikes and troughs in corporate taxes more closely associated with recessions and recoveries than with the tax rate itself. And historically, corporate tax rates were much higher, accounting for more of GDP too. Post-Great Depression through the late 1980s, they were 40 to 50%. They had been 35% for most of the last 30 years. In 2017, just as with personal income taxes, the tax bill passed by Congress and signed into law by President Trump 
dropped the corporate tax rate to a single 21% rate. The biggest difference between personal and corporate taxes, corporations can shift where their profits are generated, especially multinational corporations, far more easily and readily than you or I can pick up and move with our incomes. This makes corporate tax rates around the globe even more relevant. President Biden campaigned on and is now working towards repealing many of these tax cuts, both corporate and personal, particularly for high-income earners. Many of, you, many of you have asked why he wants to raise taxes. The answer is that he needs more tax revenues to pay for proposed increases in spending. The U.S. already spends far more than it brings in with tax revenues every year, with deficit spending, even pre-pandemic, of nearly a trillion dollars annually. With the pandemic, it was more than $3 trillion in 2020 and is already over a trillion dollars in 2021. President Biden's tax plan doesn't reduce the deficit at all. It's intended to offset higher government spending to create more growth long-term. While researching this topic, I found a super interesting research paper by the National Bureau of Economic Research from 2007. It was written by Christina and David Romer, a husband and wife economist team. Christina Romer actually served as Obama's chair of the Council of Economic Advisors in his administration. She and her husband both currently teach economics at UC Berkeley. They researched tax changes over the last century and their impact on future economic growth. They bucketed tax changes by the motivation behind the change, characterizing tax changes as exogenous or endogenous. Endogenous changes were those made to address things like economic downturns or raising taxes to fund, say, wartime spending. These have virtually disappeared from policy post the 1980s. Exogenous changes were made to address inherited deficits or to promote long-term growth, like President Biden's plan proposes. What did they find? Exogenous tax increases of 1% of GDP lowers real GDP going forward by roughly 3%. These tax changes result in sharp declines in investment. Biden's tax plan proposes increasing taxes by 1% to 1.5% of GDP over the next 10 years, depending on which projections you look at. So raising taxes to drive higher long-term growth actually has the opposite economic effect. I'll be pulling together more data on higher taxes in the coming weeks, including how they're currently distributed among households and what they're likely to look like going forward. So stay tuned for a more detailed blog post on familyfinancemom.com coming soon. Have a question about the economy or financial markets you'd like to hear covered on Finance Explained? Leave me a voice message. Just click the link in the show notes to record a message with your question or topic of interest, and I just might feature you on our next episode. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to catch each weekly episode of Finance Explained. I'd also love and appreciate your reviews. They are really critical for new podcasts, especially. Thanks so much for your support. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy, help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures.